0: Hey everyone, it's Simi Shaw, and welcome to Trailblazers. On this podcast, I dive deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians, sharing the stories of the leaders and dreamers lighting the way across the South Asian diaspora. Now, before we get to our episode, a message from Bunyan Way. A few years ago, Way founder Aparna Bhaskar observed the struggles that Indian immigrants to the U.S. faced when trying to find a life partner. Back in India, they relied on their loved ones and communities to make introductions and help them find a match. So she decided to fuse elements of traditional and modern Indian matchmaking practices and launched Way. Learn more about their services and upcoming events for singles at Banyanway.com. Now, on to our episode. For our episode today, I'm joined by the iconic Manish Goyal, founder and partner of the New York-based restaurant Sona. Manish has had an incredible journey as a serial entrepreneur. He initially went to Duke to study medicine and then got his master's in public health at Yale. But after that, he launched an incredible event marketing company called MKG, where he worked with the likes of Google, Target, Delta, and other high-profile clients before selling the company in 2019. He's since founded three other companies, Live Grey, a company culture consultancy, Pink Sparrow Scenic, a design and fabrication shop, and 214, a brand strategy and design agency. But of course, never one to sit idly by, Manish decided his next endeavor would be in the restaurant and nightlife scene here in New York. He successfully opened Sona in the last year alongside partners David Rabin and Priyanka Chopra and resurrected the iconic Temple Bar. He's also spent time in the political and nonprofit arena, working closely with the Obama administration on the board of Fulbright, and now serving on the National Board of Planned Parenthood. Today, he continues his journey as a restaurant owner, a startup investor, and advisor through his company, Pineapple Co. And as you can imagine, we have so much to talk about today. So welcome to Trailblazers, Manish.
1: Thank you, Simi. I'm super excited to be here. This is really inspiring to have this conversation. So thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, we're lucky to have you here. And I want to start in a bit of an unusual way because I was reading about how one of your major life philosophies is that risk makes life remarkable. Can you share the genesis of this philosophy that you adopted?
1: Yeah, sure. It's something that really has fueled me throughout my life. I think that often, especially, you know, and I'll put this in a context of growing up South Asian in America, I think oftentimes we feel in some ways we live between continents, we live between countries, and we live between cultures because we've got our friends at school who might live a certain way. Then we've got our friends in our community who might live another way, and we don't really know where to find ourselves. And in so doing, I think a lot of us start to live our lives almost for our parents or for what might be considered to be perception. And I did that for a long time. And I kind of lived in a way that I thought was the right way to live because it was probably the plan that my parents had for me. And once I started to frankly abandon that and I started to recognize that there's a huge opportunity ahead for living a remarkable life, but it's gonna take a lot of risk and I'm not gonna necessarily have the backing of those that are most important to me, not initially, but I've got to find it from within and they'll follow. And so I really found that I have to kind of live by this adage that risk makes life remarkable. And I don't want an overabundance of risk. You know, I don't want to be too risky or engage in risky behaviors, but I'm a risk taker because ultimately the net of taking risks is even if you fail, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about your capacity. You learn a lot about others around you who are supporters and who are detractors. So I'm a guy who walks into the fire as opposed to walking out of it. And that's a lot of because I've just kind of said, Hey, I've got this one chance. I've got this one life. And I, of course I want to make my parents proud, but I also want to wake up every morning and be psyched yeah. to do what I do and to have that 24 hours in front of me to say like, what am I going to do? And how can I accomplish things? And how can I have fun? And how can I laugh? And that doesn't necessarily happen if you're not adding a little bit of risk into your life.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's amazing and it dovetails very nicely with the conversation going on right now about the great resignation because I feel like so many people over the course of the pandemic realized that they want to find that meaning in their life and they either aren't finding it in work or want to find it in other places of their life. Yeah, I mean,
1: when you think about it, you spend more time with your colleagues than you do with your friends and family. Yeah, I mean, especially in the way that the work culture is, especially in America, and While we might not be able to change that on a macro scale, we certainly can find work and take the risks that we need to take to find a profession, a category, an industry, a livelihood that's inspiring. And I understand the privilege therein and that's inherent to that. Of course. But like people look at me sometimes, they're like, wow, it's so cool. Like you've done all these things. Nothing was charted. Nothing was in front of me. Nothing was given to me. So I'm very proud that I was like, Yeah, you're right, because I've kind of self-created it and said, let me claw my way in. Let me figure out a way to change my circumstances because I used to have what I would call the Sunday night blues. Now I think the kids call it the Sunday scaries.
0: Scaries. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I called them the Sunday night blues where I was like, oh no, do I have to go back? Because I was in a job that didn't feel right and wasn't right for me. And I wasn't excited and wasn't exciting. And ultimately... You know, I could have found another job, but instead, when I left that job, I said, "Okay, I'm going to just, I'm going to figure out what's right. I'm not going to let my degrees or my family or perception or any of these things that might have made sense on paper. I'm going to say, like, what makes sense for me." Yeah. And it resulted in me totally switching industries, totally switching categories, getting into an industry candidly in which I had no reason to be, other than I had a passion and a drive. And oftentimes that's enough. And yeah. I found my success. It took me time, but I found my success because I was driven by passion.
0: Yeah, super, super powerful sentiment. And I want to spend a second on this because I know when you went to Duke, you were initially pre-med. So can you speak to sort of the early innings of your career and then making that left turn into MKG?
1: Yeah, is there any good Daisy who's not pre-med when they start college? Chance?
0: <laughs> I wasn't, shockingly. <laughs>
1: I'm impressed because especially in my day and age, it felt like you had to keep it on the back burner. And I went so far as I took all the classes. And to be honest, I I was interested in being a doctor only for a slight second because I like people. I'm an insatiable people person. I'm not good at science. I'm not theoretical or analytical in that way that might've served me in that profession. But I even went so far as I spent a lot of money on one of those Princeton Review prep classes for the MCAT. And (laughs) I actually somehow got through the prep class and then on the day of the MCAT, I just didn't go. Oh wow! I just didn't show up, and my parents kept asking me. It was, it was at a time when the results came a few weeks later, not immediately. And my parents kept asking me when are the results coming? Have you gotten the results, et cetera? And I finally, ultimately, it was like, you know, I've had many coming outs to my parents, and so I finally had to come out to them. And I told them that I would be honest with you: this isn't for me. I didn't show up. I didn't take the MCAT. I don't want to become a doctor. But the pivot really for me was kind of recognizing that, as I said, this is my one life and I've got to kind of live it on my terms. But to be very honest, it was all interconnected with me coming to terms with my sexual identity because I was at a time when, of course, my parents would ask me, especially my mother, like, oh, there's this girl in New York and do you want to meet her? And, you know, all the things that I think a lot of us might have some resonance with And I finally had to say, like, I need to live my truth and I need to speak my truth and I need to be who I am. And only then can I continue to flourish or or live my life. And and having gone through that experience of coming out to my parents and ultimately, you know, kind of telling them who I really was, it made me realize that if I had done that, I could almost do anything. So it's that idea that struggle begets confidence and struggle helps you to understand your own power. I don't wanna be, I guess, speak with hyperbole, but I don't know that I would've just taken such a big chance, and t- such a big risk to start MKG, which is an event marketing firm, and have the chutzpah, let's say, to do something in which I really had no business. I had no experience, no industry knowledge, no relationships, but I just said, I let me do this. Because at that point, I felt like very little was on the table. And I said, I'm yeah. doing all that I can to just be myself. So why not add one more thing? Yeah. Who cares? And so it ultimately helped to fuel me. And because I loved the industry and I loved the category and I put my head down for a decade and I just built this thing. And it was super fun because I enjoyed the industry. You know, I didn't have the Sunday night scaries or the Sunday <laughs> scary. I was kind of like, oh, wow, let's go. Because I had come from a place of not enjoying My work or not being excited to show up on Monday morning, I recognized I had the power to make sure that people who worked for me didn't feel that. So how do they feel that? They feel, they had to feel connected to me. They had to be inspired by me. I had to create a culture and an environment where people felt safe and felt excited to be and felt heard and felt respected. And there had to be a diversity in the work day. So everyone wasn't just doing the same thing every single day, which could become tedious. So I had to start thinking about all these things. And once I did that, I ultimately created a culture that became a real hallmark of my company and as evidenced by the tenure time people spent with us, et cetera. So yeah. I, yeah, I grew it from just an idea to about 150 people before I sold it.
0: Yeah. No, and I saw that you'd grown it to 150 employees, four office locations, and you've spoken now for a second about how you had no experience in this space. Where did the initial seed get planted for the idea of this company? What made you want to delve into this space?
1: Yeah, so it's such a good question. So again, the space is event marketing. And to take a step back, I guess I made a list. And this is a true story. I made a list when I was grappling with what my next step would be, what my next job would be. Because I'd left the company I was at, I didn't love it. I was trying to figure out what I could do. And I was collecting unemployment in New York City. And and I literally made a list. I said, okay, Manish, let, let's figure this out. Let's make a list of all the things that don't feel like work. And I said, let's be serious about this. Let's not put like silly things like, oh, I like to sleep. Okay, who doesn't, right? It's like, that's not, there's no professional sleepers, you know? Like, so let's think about what doesn't feel like work. And when I thought about that, and I was serious about it, on my list were, I like putting out fires. I like action-packed days. I like being on the phone I like drama. I like logistics. I like details. And so all these things kind of said, okay, well, if that's what you like, maybe you should be in a high pressure, high strung environment, if you will. And maybe you should get into the event space. And again, it, it was kind of crazy for me to think that because I had no experience, no backing. And ultimately, I said, well, okay, if I want to do that, I don't want to do weddings or bar mitzvahs or like social engagements. I'm wondering... Are brands using events? And I was at the early end of when brands were starting to really wow. recognize the power of experience based marketing and experiential marketing. And so I just kind of threw my hat into a ring in which I really, you know, people would say ultimately when I was starting my business, I was selling two things I was selling experience that, hey, I've done this before, you can trust me, and contacts, like I know how to get that done. I had neither. I had no experience and no contacts, but I'm a bullshit artist and I could convince (laughs) people that I, you know, trust me. And very quickly I got experience and I got contacts to figure out how to make these jobs happen. And I was so excited that anybody would give me a chance. And so I've just found my way into the rooms where people, and I was, because I was selling something that I really loved, people would buy it. And so that's how I got my jobs. And I started to get jobs and I very slowly started to just do things on my own. And then I, a couple of years later, I hired my first employee and, and then it was off to the races.
0: Wow. And can you speak to some of those early, any particularly memorable first jobs and projects that you worked on?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the most memorable, of course, was, and this is something that could only happen in New York City. And it, it can only happen when you are driven by passion, I think, and just wanting so badly to be in a certain space and creating the space for you to walk into it. I got a call in and this was, you know, 9-11 plays a role here because it was August or just weeks before 9-11 of 2001. I got a call to help with one of Sean Combs Puff Daddy's events for the Video Music Awards. I wasn't doing the job. I was like a low man on the totem pole. Somebody said, hey, we need extra labor, like we need extra hands can you work at this job? I said, great, like, sure. Like, I'm trying to get into the business. And, you know, and all these brands, Sony and PlayStation and blah, 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 all these brands were sponsoring it. And and at the time, he was kind of known to be a consummate event guy. And so I worked at that event and I remember taking the subway home. It was in Midtown at Tao. And I remember taking (laughs) the subway home at like three or four in the morning, whatever it was. And I was like, wow, that felt great. Like, I loved being in that room. Sure, I don't want to be who I am in that room forever because I don't want to just be like the production assistant, you know, moving boxes and setting things up. But who cares? At least I'm in the right room. Yeah. And then, of course, nine eleven happened. And I was living in downtown Manhattan, so there was a curfew. And, you know, it was a very scary time, especially to be South Asian. And for many reasons, it was an intense time.
0: Yeah. The first
1: thing to dry up were any ideas of people doing events. Nobody was going to be seen as being garish or over the top. Or Makes scenes. And so I, even though I wanted, I kind of put in my head that I'm going to get into this industry, now the industry had evaporated, evaporated right in front of my face. So wow. I was really grappling with what to do. And then in November of 2001, I got a call from Sean Combs, from Puffy's office, and they said, hey, Manish, we want to talk to you about doing Puffy's New Year's Eve party in Miami. I said, oh, no, no, sorry, you called the wrong guy. Like, I was just the low man on the totem pole at that last party. And they were like, we all saw you. We liked your drive. We like who you were. We don't want to work with the person we were working with. We want to work with you. Do you want the job or not? And I was wow. like, whoa. And so... You have to imagine, like I'm a brand new guy, I don't know anything, but I also knew enough to not burn bridges, so I called the person who had hired me for the VMA job a couple months ago, and of course, he wanted to get involved, so like we did it together, but I ended up doing his New Year's Eve party in Miami, and it was a full-body experience, because candidly, I was completely in over my head, and I was ill-equipped, and I wasn't sure it would come together, but... At the strike at midnight, Sean Combs looked at me and he just kind of winked and and the party was a huge success. And I ultimately, when somebody stopped me in the airport in January 3rd or 4th, when I was leaving Miami in 2002, they said, oh, my God, I saw you at Puff's party. Like, that was amazing. Do you have a card? And I was like, no, but you know what, I think I'm just going to do this on my own. I think I'm going to like start a business and I think I will have a business card and I think I will do this. And that's how I started my business. And I wow. ended up working for Sean Combs and for Puffy for years. And so, you know, this is like a gay Indian guy ended up working for an impresario of hip hop. Like none of it makes sense, right? And I was <laughs> brand new in my career. Puffy was, you know, huge. And like, none of it makes sense, but it makes sense when, again, I was willing to take some risks. I didn't say no. I said yes a lot more than I ever say No. And yeah. I said, I'm going to figure this out, and I'm not going to let anyone down. I'm not going to disappoint. And it ended up working. And, and then, of course, I you know, once the company started, then I just kept growing and evolving it and, and scaling it.
0: Yeah. So fast forward to 2019, MKG is acquired. Can you speak to that decision and then building this company over the better part of a decade and longer?
1: Yeah, and- yeah, for sure. I think that ultimately I'm a firm believer in the notion that careers – have done well and done right, career should be a series of chapters. Mm. And each chapter, like a good book, some chapters might be shorter, and some chapters might be longer. And some chapters might have more interesting characters, and some chapters might have some really not so appealing characters. But ultimately, I felt like I had had the chapter of a lifetime, a very long, needy, exciting chapter. But it was time to close the chapter. Because after starting the company, unofficially in 2002, officially in 2003, and then getting to 2019, that's 16 years. And it was time for my next chapter. And I had my eye on hospitality and and not just hospitality broadly, but I wanted to open an Indian restaurant. I wanted to show the world how great an Indian restaurant could be in a totally new and different way. And I was working on Sona even while I had MKG, but it was time to close oh, the wow. chapter because Sona took years to make it happen, but it was time to close that chapter. So it was just the right time. And also I really had empowered a team around me and, and I wanted the team to participate in what would be a sale and also the team to kind of have new roles as they moved into that they, they could take the, the strings of the company and run with it as if it was their own, because technically at that point it is. And since I was stepping away. So it, for many reasons, it was the right decision and the right time. And it was a collective one. It was one that I brought people into. You know, I had a circle of trust and it really worked for me wow. to keep those people in a circle of trust. The key executives that were at MKG and Pink Sparrow. And it was the right time. And and, and and let's also be honest that this is kind of a karma thing, I guess, when you're good to the world and you're good to people, the world is good to you. And I sold an event Company and experience company in the fall of 2019. So um, you know, none of us had any idea. Later. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> none, none of us had any any idea that a couple months later, events would come to a screeching halt. So the timing of my exit was, of course, great because it would have. I mean, I would have stuck by the company side and we would have rebuilt it. And thankfully, MKG is soaring. And it's of course, it was challenging for a period of time, but it's really exciting. It's all about this notion of chapters, right? And, and mm. it was time for my next chapter.
0: Yeah. So can you speak to this next chapter? I know you turned your attention to the hospitality scene here in New York and starting Sona, and you've spoken about how you wanted Sona to have an impact on Indian cuisine the way that Nobu did for Japanese food. Can you share more about that vision?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I love talking about Sona because I'm so proud of Sona. And I hope everyone listening, when you're in New York City, please come through Sona. I'm say,
0: due for my visit. <laughs> you are due.
1: You are overdue, in fact. Yes. The story of Sona actually begins all the way back in 1975 in Dallas, Texas, which is where I was born, In the year in which I was born. Because two months after I was born, I was born in March, and two months later in May, My father opened the very first Indian restaurant in the entire state of Texas. So he had an entrepreneurial spirit within him that he finally realized he had a full-time job at Xerox. I was the youngest of three. My mother didn't drive at the time. You know, they were pretty recent immigrants within the past seven years or so. And he realized that there's potentially an opportunity to open a restaurant, an Indian restaurant specifically, And it was amazing. I spent my boyhood in that restaurant. So I didn't necessarily learn the business or learn anything because he had it for a a little less than 10 years. Ultimately though, I remember my playpen behind the bar and all these things that I have very visceral memories of that restaurant. It was called India House. And I said, even at that time, I said, one day I wanna do what my dad did and and I'm gonna do what my dad's doing. And it took me four decades, but I did it. And I opened Sona in March of 2021, we broke ground on the space after a long journey to find the right space. We broke ground on the space in January of 2020. So you can imagine all of 2020 was spent after we had to, of course, stop construction and the whole project. We had to really figure out, can this project stay alive? What does the future look like? And we had to renegotiate terms with our landlord, et cetera, et cetera. And so we ultimately were able to keep it alive and get back to work and building it, and then ultimately find the opening at the end of March. And it is a dream because I, like I said, I've wanted to have this restaurant. My father's restaurant was called India House. Then there's a dish, our butter chicken, is inspired entirely by India House's butter chicken. And it's obviously a fan favorite. And we've got photos of me as a young boy in front of Media <laughs> house. And, you know, we're paying homage to, in some way, yeah. the immigrant experience. But this idea that stories are long and the arc of a story can be unexpected. When my parents finally came to the restaurant after they were fully vaccinated in April of this year, so, you know, about six weeks after we opened, end of April, when they came, they just, it was a very emotional experience because for them, they said, you know, we were so young, we had no idea what we were doing. We opened this restaurant in Dallas. And to think that one of our kids so many years later would also now open, not just a restaurant, but of course an Indian restaurant to follow in their footsteps. It was a beautiful and very emotional and very lovely and loving experience to have them come to the restaurant.
0: Wow. Super powerful. I mean, and it resonates a ton because I feel like so much of the arc of my career, where I see it going, is similar in that it's taking the entrepreneurial spirit and energy of our parents and seeing how we can take that, you know, a generation or two forward. So that's amazing, and I'm, I hope they enjoyed it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, they certainly did. In fact, they came five nights in a row, and my mother got fully dressed, and it was,
0: oh wow, it was
1: a dream, honestly, and and it continues to be. And, and listen, it's also. I'm learning a new business. It's also a challenge yeah. and a struggle, and Omicron was really devastating to the business, and we've had staff transitions that we didn't expect, and we've had a lot of people leave reviews that make my heart sink, but it's just part of the business, right? And yeah. you can't please everybody, but thankfully we're pleasing a ton of people. We're you know one of New York's hot restaurants. Are, the food is unimaginably good. The cocktails are strong. We, we only, we have an art program where we show only artists from India. And so we have amazing music from DJ Rekha does our music. And so I'm super proud of the immersive experience, the immersive all encompassing experience for India.
0: Absolutely. Can you speak to what it's been like working with so many trailblazers on this project? Obviously, Chef Hari Nayak, David Robin, who's considered a guru in the New York nightlife scene. Brianka Chopra, of course. I mean, what has it been like to have so many people come together to help build this vision?
1: I had the story, right? I had the passion. I had the story. And I had the connection, if you will, to why this restaurant. But I certainly know my shortcomings. And so I didn't have legitimacy. And so David Raven brings legitimacy because he's a tried into restaurateur and hospitality guru in New York City specifically. So he gave me legitimacy. And then I needed literally a seat at the table and Chef Hari Nayak, who is a world renowned chef and has written seven cookbooks and has consulted on many restaurants. He had never had a flagship of his own. And so, you know, I partnered bringing in Chef Hari into the fold. And then I said, "Okay, so now I've got a chef, I've got the seat at the table, I've got some legitimacy." I said, like, "Okay, we would really benefit from a megaphone, you know." And I think of Priyanka as the world's first global Indian. Sure, it's rare that somebody is as globally known in the same way that Priyanka is, because she's known not just throughout India and America, but throughout Europe and Africa and the Middle East, et cetera. So. Her being involved and and being a a partner in the project and being my partner in the project has been a huge benefit because she has a global audience and so she can share with them all about Sona. So together, I kind of recognized my shortcomings and I recognized the opportunity and together we became a formidable team and it was a great team of friends coming together to really push a boulder up a hill. Opening a restaurant in New York City is always challenging, but opening one during COVID times is even tougher. And it's been a dream.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Can you speak to some of those challenges? I mean, I think the challenges in the restaurant business, generally speaking, are underrated as a whole. and As you said, probably exacerbated in these times. Can you just speak to what it's been like navigating that, especially being a first time owner?
1: For sure. So it's one of those industries that I imagine much like producing a Broadway play or shooting a movie that seems so glamorous on the outside, but on the inside, it takes arduous work. And so I think when people look at a restaurant, and I certainly did before I was in the business myself, I was just like, wow, this would be so fun to be in. And you don't really realize the intensity and the hard work and the passion and the drive of all the people that it takes to make a restaurant really sing and a restaurant's not too dissimilar to an orchestra right every piece has to really work in concert with one another yeah. to maximize the whole experience and to have it reach its full potential so to that extent I think I'm on a steep learning curve I'm also working with a team and, and employees and team members that I've never worked with before and, and and this is so exciting for me because suddenly I get to get back to that position that I loved, which is creating the culture and being a leader and inspiring others and leading by my actions and my words and really hoping that people will feel something and not just be there. Of course, they are there to earn their livelihood, but also they see something bigger here, which is like, oh wow, I'm part of something that is, that is trying to change the game. I'm part of something that is very different and unique. I'm part of something brand new. And that should be exciting for everybody involved. It's certainly exciting for me. And we've seen that. We have a lot of employees that have been with us since day one and really see this. And, And we're very proud to have a very diverse staff that, of course, has South Asians as members of the team, but we have a wide range of employees from varying backgrounds. So we really look and feel like New York. And Indian yeah. food, you know, I, I don't think it's been given its proper credit and its proper due. And Indian food can and should be a global food in the same way that Mexican food is, and certainly Chinese food and Japanese food are. And so to that extent, the people of all different backgrounds can and should be able to talk about Indian food and answer questions about Indian yeah. food. And that was always my intention is that when you walk in it feels like new york it doesn't necessarily feel like you're being transported to another land another country another continent but rather you're just going to a great restaurant that happens to be indian and you're also going to get a unique experience unlike any other
0: yeah Absolutely. Well, I'm super excited to try it. It's been on my list for some time and Sushma and I are planning to come in the next few weeks. So I love that. Just having I this conversation it. is getting me more excited. Yeah. Something I'm curious about, this is obviously one of your many initiatives in addition to MKG and now Sona Some of the other entrepreneurial endeavors you've launched in the last number of years involve Live Gray, Pink Scenic, which I know you sold with MKG, and also 214. Can you speak to these ventures and give us some insight into the Genesis story again?
1: Yes. So again, I'm an entrepreneur in my heart and in my blood. I like to look for opportunity and seize opportunity when I see it and also dream things up. And not everything is here for the long term. So some of the companies like 214, an amazing brand studio. And ultimately when I sold MKG and Pink Sparrow and I really made my pivot to hospitality, I ultimately decided that it was the right time to kind of sunset that company and let it go and let the team all find different roles, but all who benefited from being part of what I'm now calling or was calling and still called the Pineapple Co family. So I kind of create a parent And then I have many companies below. And I'm not precious about things that might not last forever because certainly MKG and Pink Sparrow are soaring. And that doesn't mean that 214 has to continue to soar because everything is kind of there for a reason. But one of the things I guess I'm most excited about right now in the entrepreneurial experience is I am launching yet another company very soon that is born entirely out of the experience of dining at Sona and really the keen eye that we put towards the experience of Sona from the dishware the plateware the all the goods let's call them all the goods that make the Sona experience when you come into our restaurant on 20th street I'm creating a separate business that we're launching in the late spring of this year called Sona Home and everything is going to be retailed Because we've had such a reaction, this was not an expected business. This is, again, looking at opportunity when it's in front of you. And as soon as we started, we opened our doors on March 26th, more than half the people, and this still happens today, almost 11 months later, half the people will sit down at their table, they'll look at their plate, and they'll smile, and they'll immediately turn it over to say, what is this plate? Where is it from? I've never seen it before. And it's true because we did a lot of work and, and diligence to say like, we've got to have the experience. And it's not uniquely Indian as much as it's global. There's palm trees on the plate and there's beautiful artwork. A lot of people don't think of palm trees in India. And of course, India is very tropical and it's beautiful and it's got a whole beach culture even well above and beyond Goa that is beautiful. So we're really just kind of having people reconsider what it is to be India and to be Indian or to have an Indian experience. And part of that is manifested through the plateware and manifested through everything that we have. And so once I saw this opportunity, I said, people love this. Then people started to say, hey, can I buy these? Can I? And I said, well, no, we have people coming tomorrow. We need those plates. (laughs) And so but I said, but hold on, maybe we can figure something out. Then we're going to launch with about 45 products table linens and napkins and placemats and we yeah. have beautiful lamps on our tables at Sona and the lamp shades are made from vintage saris that we cut up and so we yeah. are gonna we're, we're gonna retail the little mini lamps and we've got wine coolers and all different product and so it's a very exciting time for me as I think about how Sona can continue to soar And of course, I want to open other Sonas. That's certainly in the works and in the cards. But in addition, as I work to open other Sonas, I'm also working to launch Sona Home, which, as I said, is going to be launching very soon. It'll be direct-to-consumer for now, and I'm sure at some point we'll have wholesale and retail partners. But for now, we're going to go direct-to-consumer. So, yes, stay tuned for the launch of Sona Home coming up very soon.
0: Very, very exciting. I mean, it's just so obvious that You're a dock connector. You know, where opportunities present themselves, you're going to bite. I think it's awesome. And I'm sure a lot of us are going to be investing in redecorating our apartments with the help of Sona Homes. So that's right. excited to see that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're going to love it. And it's really proud as as a lot of us, especially our generation and different generation, I should say, are kind of rethinking and reconsidering what it means to be at home and what it means to have people over to your home it's really nice to feel proud of what you put on your table and how you invite people over. And, and so, yes, that's all part of it. I'm a big entertainer. I've built a life around inviting people over and I enjoy it immensely. And so that's, it's all part of a, again, a manifestation of my own interests.
0: Absolutely. I was reading a feature about your home here in New York and how so much of the furniture and design is inspired by Indian culture. And of course, your mother's old saris and you hired an Indian interior designer. And it just seems like South Asian culture continues to manifest itself throughout various elements of your life. Can you speak a little bit more to that?
1: Yeah, for sure. So it seems to me, I guess as I get older, I'm even more interested in allowing South Asian culture to permeate and and be part of my life. In some ways to pay tribute to my amazing family, my parents who risked so much and really came to start a life, a brand new life. So they had an immigrant experience that I will never understand or can never walk in those shoes, but I certainly can try to respect from my vantage point. And so I think, you know, because I never have worked in the South Asian space. So that's why I'm so impressed with somebody like yourself who's creating this trailblazers. Even earlier in your career, you're connecting with your South Asian roots. And to me, I'm doing it a little later in my career, but something I'm super proud of. And and now I want it to manifest in different ways. So yes, I want it to manifest in my home. I want it to manifest in the organizations I support. I want to manifest it bothered me I'm I'm an entertainer right it bothered me to a certain extent that New York City of all cities didn't have a really spectacular Diwali party and I said well why is there no like there's every other kind of party where's the amazing Diwali party so then together I I brought some friends into the mix and then I put together a spectacular Diwali party for the past couple of years obviously we didn't do it in 2020 but you know these things are important for me to celebrate and I really want to be in the forefront of doing work that's exactly like this
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a really special thing. And I will also say, I think part of why people like myself who are earlier in their careers are doing it is because overall, I think people are starting to come together around our culture, building for it, catering things for us. To your point, you know, celebrating cultural holidays with a little bit more gusto and bringing everyone together in a way that we never used to. And I think it's just a really special and exciting time to be South Asian.
1: It is. It's very exciting to be South Asian and there's an opportunity and there's also a responsibility that I feel like comes with it in the sense that like, it's up to us to continue to show our culture, to understand our culture, to be proud of our culture, and also to integrate it into a broader culture. You know, we, we never want to be xenophobic and just hang amongst ourselves. We want to of open doors and build bridges and as we should with other communities, especially other communities of color, with other black and brown communities, you know, this is really, it's up for us to now understand, like, what is this experience of being a person of color living in America? And and how can we all link arms and continue to support one another and support the broader community? So these are all things that really matter a lot to me.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that thought a ton, because I feel like to your point on bridging the culture, I mean, when people ask me, you know, who's your target audience for trailblazers, of course, it's other South Asians. But I'm like, it's really for anyone who's interested in learning from inspired people who've done inspiring things. And that's not just limited to South Asians. It's, you know, a way of opening a door.
1: It's a way of opening a door. And I think that there's a lot of stories that can and should be told in our community. And you're offering that. And that's really nice. And sometimes these stories don't have a platform to be told. And so that's really great. But I appreciate that aperture is wider. We are not just trying to do a single thing. Rather, we're trying to do several things all at once, which is, you know, the boldness of being South Asian to say, like, sure, we can do this, you know, and and yes, that's kind of the way we grew up. (laughs) Yeah, we bite big and we dream big.
0: Absolutely. I think it's the uh, entrepreneurial multi-hyphenate DNA that tends to run through our veins. (laughs) That's right. That multi-hyphenate.
1: One is never enough. Enough
0: yes. and ever. So, on that note, if there's anything I've gathered here, it's that you're a Renaissance man. And another little known element of your career is your work in politics and with national nonprofits, namely the Fulbright Scholarship Board, to which President Obama appointed you, and also now the National Board of Planned Parenthood. How are you approached for these roles? What's your mandate?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. And thank you for lifting it up into the conversation. Ultimately, growing up, in suburban Dallas, when I felt very different, some for obvious reasons, some for less obvious reasons, you know, kind of struggling at an early age with my identity very privately. I have always felt the power and, in some ways, a conviction and a responsibility again to be a community builder. Oftentimes, I approach it because I didn't necessarily feel like I had a big community. And so I want to do what I can to be a community builder and to lift up communities and to support those that frankly need support. We had the great privilege several years ago of hosting the then sitting first lady, Michelle Obama, at our home in New York for a lunch. And at that lunch, she spoke, of course, with inspiration kind of running through her veins. She spoke very openly about how when your life unexpectedly provides you the opportunity to walk through doors that you never thought you would walk through it's not enough to just walk through those doors but you must before the door closes you must look back and pull someone through that door with you and so that's a lot of where i come from and how i approach my commitment to volunteerism support building community and so i've always been involved with nonprofits, and i've always been involved with different organizations. And being now on the National Board of Planned Parenthood, that was really something that I sought after because I firmly believe and care about not only sexual and reproductive health, but also about the experience of being a woman who has autonomy, not only over her body, but her mind and her choices. And so I feel very proud. And I started to volunteer for Planned Parenthood when I was in high school. And so oh, in wow. Texas. And so, you know, there was a history there. And then I met people yeah. here. And so ultimately, I found a way to network my way into the conversation that allowed me to be considered for the National Board. And I've spent now four years on the National Board. And, and as you mentioned, previous to that, I was a, a on the Fulbright Foreign Scholarship Board through the State Department appointed by President Obama. And that was really because I've done a lot of work on the president's campaigns, both of them but also because I built relationships within the administration. And so I had friends there and then they asked me, do you want to serve? And I said, well, I don't know even what that means. Like I I want to support my country, but I've got a full time job. And they said, oh, no, there's boards and commissions that the president has to appoint people to. And, And I said, it'd be an honor. And they said, funny enough, they said, well, what about a full, the Fulbright board? And I said, okay, that's fascinating because I'm a, a fan of the program, but I just want to tell you that I applied for a Fulbright my senior year in college and I was flatly rejected. And I said, does that, does that, and they said, and they said no, in fact, that takes no bearing on whether you join the board or not. And in fact, if anything, maybe that's what you call a full circle moment. And so, you know, like, so I had, you know, in the State Department, I had to give some remarks after I was officially sworn in as a member of the board. And I shared that story to say, like, I didn't actually get to become a Fulbrighter, but now I'm reading applications on behalf of other Fulbrighters. <laughs> it's, it's very poetic. And, and I, I gave yeah. a lot to that program. I was on the board for five years. And, and there's you know, many other ways in which I try to continue to build and support communities and, and support people in my life who come into my life. And I recognize like, hey, I might have a, an opportunity to help this person. That, that's a lot of what I like to do.
0: Absolutely. I want to double click on the community responsibility element you touched on, especially as it's tied to your identity. To be frank, you're the first openly gay person we've had on this podcast. Yeah. And obviously... It's a tough conversation within our community. I think we've made a lot of progress in this front, particularly with younger generations. But I imagine growing up in Texas in the 90s in a South Asian family, that was a tough journey. Could you speak a little bit to it and advice you have for young South Asians who are struggling with that part of their identity today?
1: Yeah, no, I'm so glad, again, that you're bringing this up because I certainly had no one to look to and I had nowhere to look. And as we all know, your mind can be one of your most valuable assets, but it can also be one of your most cruel adversaries, your own mind. And that's obviously why you see the high numbers of suicide amongst LGBT youth and teens. For me, there was a time in my life because of the lack of visibility where I had convinced myself that I was the only Indian gay person in the world because I didn't know any other. And so like, while it's ludicrous to think about a billion plus people and you're going to be the only one, but if you don't know any others and you've never seen any others, then why would you think differently? And again, your mind is in control at this point. Logic and reason aren't in control. And so I was like, how do I fit in? Because I cannot imagine being both. I can't imagine being Indian and being gay because there was no space that was ever created. And so... I'm so happy that now space is being created, there is visibility, things are changing, both here as well as globally, to recognize, okay, there are legions of people who are very much a part of our community, but they were born differently. And that difference, just like people with light skin or dark skin, in our community, all skin color is beautiful and needs to be recognized as such the same way. All identities are beautiful and need to be recognized as such. And who are we Absolutely. to say one is more important or one is more valuable than others? Now, of course, you know, I sit here in a place of acceptance and growth. But when I was devastatedly nervous to tell my parents, you know, I sat them down at the kitchen table where I grew up. And when I told them and, and the reaction was not positive, the reaction was one of shock frankly, judgment, but also concern about what they did to cause this, you know, what they could have done differently. Should I have put you in sports? Should I have done other, you know, like what, what did I do to cause this? And I had read enough about knowing what it's like to come out to your parents and especially South Asian parents that you kind of have to let them speak and and let them go through it and not take anything too personally, if you will, at that time, because they're reacting and reactions aren't necessarily coming from the best place. And ultimately- Those reactions over time, you know, they don't want the rest of the extended family to know. And then you flash forward many, many years and I'm having a big Indian wedding, you know, like the Indian wedding of my dreams to my husband. And so then the whole family is there and it's, you know, there's wide acceptance. And now my mother feels like she is such a proud advocate. She tells me every film, Hindi film that has a LGBT (laughs) storyline or anything. She's like, so, you know, so it's just a remarkable journey, but it's one that started, I hope for younger people will start with a lot less angst. And I know it because I get DMs from people all over the world to say like, wow, I look at your Instagram and you live so proudly, you live so out and it's so inspiring and it's not the way I can. I'm so scared and I'm so nervous. And, you know, my heart goes out to people like that. And I just, you know, respond as much as I can to say like, listen, it is true that it gets better. And it is true that the world is changing and acceptance is brewing. And you need to just kind of, you know, in some ways it's why I gravitated towards New York City. I have siblings that don't live in New York and I had spent time in New York before I moved here, but I found a place that I knew I could be accepted and where I could find a community. And I'll always remember the very first time I heard about something called Salga, the South Asian Lesbian and Gay yeah. Association. And I went at the community center, the LGBT community center here in New York city, they had a meeting and I very like knee shaking. I walked into this room by myself, had no friends. And no, you know, shortly after I moved to New York and it was a Saturday morning support group, everyone's sitting around in a circle on chairs. And I walked in and as soon as I walked in, My whole life changed. And honestly, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, there are people like me who understand me. Then somebody invited me to coffee afterwards. And I was like, oh, my God, am I making friends? And sure, I do. Some of those people from that first meeting are some of my closest friends over 20 years later. And so that's been a big part of my experience and my identity is that. I not only want to be part of this community, but I, the LGBT community, but I, I want to be part of the South Asian LGBT community because Absolutely. there's an inherent power in the visibility that we now offer.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, it's inspired and clearly you're a model for so many young South Asians who are navigating this right now. So thank you.
1: Yeah, of course. Thank you for asking.
0: The last big question I have for you is You've clearly worked on so many things. You're a serial entrepreneur who just has such a spirit and passion for this work and new ventures. What's next for you?
1: That's a great question, again. But this is the thing is that when you're a participant in life and not a passerby, you really don't know what's next. And that's the exciting part. And so, What I do know is that I am having the time of my life with Sona and I want to see Sona's in other cities. And so that's for sure something I'm, I'm working on and will continue to work on. And I also want Soda on 20th Street, our flagship, our home, our first restaurant. I want it to continue to be great right now. We're in the midst of planning what we're going to do for Holy coming up. And we're, you know, like I was oh, like, exciting. just the way I was like, Diwali needs to be celebrated. Holy should be celebrated. We're the people that should celebrate it. And, you know, all these things I think that really matter to me are like, how do we just infuse newness and infuse opportunity into a life. And so there will always be new projects. Um, As mentioned, I'm launching Sona Home soon. And so there will always be new projects. And I'm always open and ready to think about what new projects are. People will sometimes say like, oh, you have so much on your plate. And I'm always like, oh, do I? Like, I feel like I could put more. (laughs) I'm always wanting to put more on my plate. That means
0: you're having fun. (laughs) That means I'm having fun.
1: Exactly. And of course, it can be... stressful and overwhelming at times, but I'm pretty, you know, you figure out the best ways for yourself to manage that.
0: Yeah. Well, super, super exciting. It's been such an honor having you here. And I'm so excited to see all that comes out of Sona Home. If you're looking to open Sona in Atlanta, please keep me posted. I will for sure. (laughs) Manish, thanks so much for joining me on Trailblazers today. I can't wait for others to hear your story and just be inspired by the entrepreneurial zeitgeist and spirit that you bring everywhere. Thank you.
1: I appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Sydney. It's a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.